0: And welcome to Linux Action News, episode 183, recorded on April 4th, 2021. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Did you dodge all the pranks and fake releases for April Fools? Well, I think we'll
1: see today. The proof is in the podcast pudding. All right, let's do the news. And we start with something that's definitely not a prank, although it was announced around April Fools. Right on schedule, Alma Linux's initial release is
0: here. <laughs>
1: This first version is based on Red Hat Enterprise Linux 8.3 sources. And as you probably remember, Alma Linux launched with the code name Project Linux when Red Hat announced CentOS was shifting focus from CentOS Linux to CentOS Stream, which tracks just ahead of the current RHEL release. Now, under a new name, Alma Linux OS is here. With its very first release,
0: yeah, congratulations to them, and hitting it right on time too. That's impressive to see. That makes them first to market with this. Cloud Linux is the company behind Alma Linux, and they started in 2009 to provide a customized version of RHEL, their own version of RHEL that was purpose-built for their customers, multi-tenancy web and server hosting companies. So they were essentially selling the shovels to the hosting companies that were doing the mining and. When the Red Hat news about the change in CentOS's status came out, they were just perfectly positioned to spring into action because their work pipeline was building this already. That's what they had been doing. So they were first to market with this stable traditional CentOS clone because it was so in line with their existing business practice.
1: As exciting as all that is, though, Chris, there's another piece of this announcement that might be just as important.
0: You might be right, Wes, long term. So, what it is, is the company announced the formation of a nonprofit organization that will go around the distribution. And it's aptly named the Alma Linux Open Source Foundation.
1: And it's this group that's going to take over managing the Alma Linux project going forward. Although Cloud Linux will still be involved and has even committed a $1 million annual endowment to
0: support the project. They've recently hired a former Red Hat employee and Fedora engineer to run the community. And this governing board they're putting together, I'm I'm mixed on it, Wes.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it'll be mostly made up of Cloud Linux staff, but there are going to be two additional members that will be selected by the Alma Linux community
0: itself. Yeah, a couple of members just from outside of Alma Linux that are part of the nonprofit, a couple of members of the staff from Cloud Linux, and then, I guess, down the road, these other community members will join but, you know, to me, Wes, it seems like a, a clear attempt to appeal to the people that are still kind of in shock by all of the CentOS changes and perhaps skeptical of a corporate entity running a, a, this, this, this type of distribution now and maybe are a little more inclined to go with something backed by a community. It feels like they're trying to say, well, we will now be all of those things. We will have the $1 million resources of Cloud Linux and, and some of the staff, and we have a community governance board which will guide the distribution.
1: Yeah, or, or at least I think there's the sense that they they want to do this the right way that they appreciate the open source model and the open source community and right they acknowledge like okay well we should probably have a foundation we should have a board we should have you know folks involved with the community. It's definitely a
0: positive thing I think to see that.
1: Yeah, I mean the intention seems good here. It does to me still feel, you know, there's been a lot of benefit from the, the corporate resources to get this bootstrapped and it's all happened very quickly. Again to their credit, but I just I think it takes time to build legitimate community and that interaction and to see, you know, over a couple of releases maybe or at least a few more months, is there back and forth? How does the development work? What's the nature of this this new community?
0: Right. This is this is truly chapter one. Everything that's been before this was just like the epilogue. This is now what what is living this distribution like going forward? And it's ironic because the benchmark might actually be the least you can tell, like the less and less you can tell you're on a different distribution, the better a job they're doing, and they're trying to make it appealing to people to convert from RHEL or CentOS to them and make scripts available. And but you got to think it's a job well done when you can't tell you've switched, right? Which is kind of funny. You look at it; that's kind of funny. But I think I think they they recognize what this is. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. This is like parallel universe kind of opportunity, like. When and how else, who could have seen this giant opening coming in the super established enterprise grade Linux server distro market? It was locked down tight. And now, all of a sudden, this company we've never heard of until about a year ago well, a little bit, not even that long ago comes along and they have the first crack at what could be one of the major Linux server distros. Like, when else do you see an opportunity like this open up? And the fact that they executed in four months. It puts them, I think, at the front of the list right now. Yeah, I think it
1: does. And clearly they they sense that this was an opportunity. I mean, you weren't just going to go unseat the classic version of CentOS by yourself, right? It took Red Hat deciding they wanted to change the focus for this to exist. They should probably feel good about how quickly they've dived
0: in here. And how good they are positioned, you know, because it was already kind of in line with their existing business model. So this was a, a process that they've already built and established. And so just expanding on that wasn't a matter of spinning up everything from scratch like it is for Rocky Linux. It was just simply investing in what they've already done.
1: Right. Build it out a little better in the in the public view, transition things out into the open and make it a little more generic.
0: And they have the benefit of having the organizational aspects of a company to help just staff the things that need done to get something like this going. I mean, even getting a governance board established takes many, many hours of work behind the scenes, and they have people who get paid to do that work. And so they're kind of giving you the promise that, or the kind of the guarantee you get by having a company with a revenue model behind it and the advantage of having community governance. But it's really going to be it's going to be one of these things where we're going to have to be a year or two down the road to see how all of these different CentOS clones are contending and if any of them have deviated much if they try to add their own value or whatever it might be that makes them different because their core value is going to be as be as close to rel as possible which means there's not a lot of area in there for them to offer differentiated value. And of course, there's still also, you know, CentOS is, is
1: around, Stream exists. And how do you feel about this, you know, this new brand new community and foundation
0: versus something more established like Red Hat itself? That's still up in the air. Along with that is not just it's CentOS as a project, but also is this Stream model perhaps a better model For servers today, especially servers where a lot of the workload is either virtualized or containerized, maybe it makes a little more sense to go the core OS route and have a little bit more frequently updated base OS. And CentOS will provide just that, but still be a very enterprise-focused distribution. So it could actually end up being perfectly usable for most people, and none of these CentOS clones ever end up picking up that many users in mass because of that. Just wait and see. Like a bad movie remake, this week, IBM and Red Hat were sued for copyright and antitrust violations from a SCO Group successor, Zinuous. They formed around the SCO Group's zombie corpse about a decade ago, and this week they thought, hey, let's reignite a decades-old fight, so they sued IBM and Red Hat for alleged copyright antitrust violations, claiming that, quote... First,
1: IBM stole Zinuous's intellectual property and used that stolen property to build and sell a product to compete with Zinuous itself. And second, stolen property in IBM's hand, IBM and Red Hat illegally agreed to divide the relevant market and use their growing market powers to victimize consumers, innovative competitors, and innovation itself.
0: My goodness. The complaint from the Virgin Islands-based company, further contends that after the two companies conspired in their evil boardrooms to divide the market up IBM then did their master move and acquired Red Hat to really solidify its evil genius position
1: now of course the SCO group way back in 2003 made a similar intellectual property claim at the time arguing that the SCO group owned the rights to AT&T's Unix and UnixWare operating system source code and that Linux versions 2.4 and 2.5 at the time, were just unauthorized derivatives of Unix.
0: Oh, man.
1: (laughs) And that IBM violated its contractual
0: obligations by distributing Linux. I can't help but just have a, a toot about this one, because I remember this from the days gone by where this originally went down. You know, back in 2001, SCO, which was this plucky little Unix company, joined forces with a plucky little Linux company called Caldera to form what they thought was going to be like this major, serious Unix approach to Linux that would compete with Red Hat. Instead, it took them about two years or so to drive the thing into the ground, and then SCO sued IBM in an all-out legal attack to essentially try to derive some value from the IP they held. And as I recall, and probably many of you do as well, that drug on for years. And... It got to a point where it got ridiculous. I had clients who started to doubt the use of Linux because SCO actually made claims that they would sue individual Linux users for infringement. Despite those claims, things did not exactly go
1: well. SCO lost battle after battle and was eventually forced to file for bankruptcy in 2007. But what is notable is that while some of the claims have been dismissed, its case against IBM remains essentially
0: unresolved. I always wondered if this would come back to bite us. So let's fast forward to 2011. They went bankrupt in 2007. We fast forward to 2011. And really, the only thing left of value in SCO is its Unix operating system, which they sold to Unixys or Unisys. The original name of Xenuos. Right. Uh, That acquisition, which at the time seemed a little strange, kind of makes sense when you figure that SCO's Unix products like OpenServer and Unixware... Still had a small but real market share. But the ironic thing is, is at the time, the Zenios people said, we have no interest in SCO's quote, worthless lawsuits. And in 2016, the CEO, Sean Snyder, said, we are not SCO. We are investors who bought the products.
1: We did not buy the ability to pursue litigation against IBM, and we have absolutely no
0: interest in that. Now, what changed? You know, because that's a pretty bold statement. Well, kind of like the old SCO Caldera situation fell apart, they also have fallen upon hard times and now have officially released a statement that says, Well, this case is about zinuous and the theft
1: of our intellectual property. It is also about market manipulation that has harmed consumers, competitors, the open source community, and innovation
0: itself. These copyright claims go back almost two decades now and seem like they've lost time after time. But digging into this again, I was looking at it it seems like the litigation is based off of specific Unixware and open server operating systems and code that came into existence after September 19th, 1995. So not the earlier Unix code, but after that point. So when an IBM spokesperson was reached for comment, Doug Shelton responded with the following. Xenuous's copyright
1: allegations merely rehash the stale claims of its predecessor, whose copyrights Zinuous purchased out of bankruptcy, and have no merit. Xenuous's antitrust allegations brought against IBM and Red Hat, the world's largest open-source company, similarly defy logic. IBM and Red Hat will aggressively defend the integrity of the open-source development process and the inherent choice and in thus
0: competition that open-source fosters. Not only does it defy logic, as IBM puts it, but Xenuist provides really zero proof of this claim that IBM and Red Hat conspired to divide up the Unix and Linux market between them, and then the grand finale was IBM's ninja move to buy Red Hat to consolidate its market share. No, it seems more like IBM's purchase of Red Hat was a desperate move to stay relevant. And,
1: of course, Xenuist's version of reality doesn't explain the rise of Debian, Ubuntu, or all the other server distros.
0: Linode.com slash Go there to receive a $100 60-day credit towards your new account. Linode makes cloud computing simple, affordable, and accessible. I realized the other day, Linode is really part of our team. I mean, they make what we do behind the scenes possible. And if it weren't really for these spots, you'd never know that we use Linode because, like all great infrastructure... The users never really notice it. It's just fast, reliable, and it makes your experience great. And that's one of the many reasons Linode is our favorite hosting provider. Linode is also the largest independent cloud computing provider. They've been in this since 2003, and they've got it right. They make it easy for you to give your creations their own personal space on the Internet. No matter what skill level you're at or what technology stack you use, Linode can help your ideas come to life on the web. And if you run into any trouble, they have the best support. It comes with whatever level account you have, one server or a whole bunch of servers. You get 24-7 customer support by phone, ticket, chat, along with hundreds of super high-quality tutorials to help you get started. And Linode is easy to use while also having a powerful cloud dashboard. One of the features I love is their S3-compatible object storage. It's great for all kinds of applications. So that's why you got to go and check it out for yourself and get that $100 credit and support the show. Sign up today at linode.com slash LAN. Get that $100, 60-day credit towards your new account and support the show, of course. That's linode.com slash LAN. Canonical has released a community preview of Ubuntu
1: on Windows is a sandbox for experimenting with new features and functionality on Windows subsystem for Linux 2.
0: A.K.A. The Weasel.
1: Now, if you're not familiar, Ubuntu on Windows is normally installed via the Microsoft Store, and only LTS releases are available.
0: Yeah, now, this new preview that Canonical is cooking up is only available by a special sneaky link, which, of course, we have in the show notes. And it's a frequently updated build of Ubuntu that is based on 2104, which is expected to release on April 22nd. This setup is specifically more user-friendly for the WSL environment, and it uses a utility called Ubuntu Weasel with many features that are experimental. And this allows Windows users to tinker with settings such as how Windows drives are mounted and other kind of text-based options to make life in Weasel more satisfying.
1: Now, Canonical said that the preview is important to match the speed of innovation in open source and test
0: new features with the community at a faster pace. That's another way of saying we feel like this platform has a community that is large enough that wants to build applications on Ubuntu, but they want the latest Ubuntu so they can supposedly, in theory, I guess hypothetically, Develop future Ubuntu applications from the Windows desktop, because that's why they would need access to the development versions of Ubuntu is if they're writing applications, but they're using it via Weasel on Windows. So they're writing Linux applications on Windows for a version of Linux that hasn't been released yet.
1: Now, maybe you're writing a server side app that you're just
0: trying to, you know, plan ahead a little bit. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That does make more sense for the server side. Although how many servers are going to be based off of
1: 2104? But they'll be based on future LTSs and maybe you want to make sure you're catching up with libraries
0: to get ahead of changes. Right. You get the kinks worked out on this system before it's close to LTS time. And then by the time it's LTS time, you have this system kind of worked out and people know how to use it. And, you know, maybe this, uh, these scripts to make it better under Weasel are even more flushed out. Though, to your point, one feature that is eagerly
1: awaited right now is official support for a GUI on Weasel 2. Now, last year at Build 2020 in May, a Microsoft program manager did say that adding Linux GUI app support is on the roadmap, and that their goal is for a user to be able to run Linux GUI apps on the desktop seamlessly alongside Windows apps. We've heard little sense... Perhaps there will be more at this upcoming build, but what we do know is Microsoft's implementation is going to communicate with an RTP client on the Windows host. Sadly, no sign of this yet in the new Windows Community preview, but there is an intriguing option to include legacy GUI integration, though
0: we should note that requires a third-party X server. Well, just in time, because it might be just one giant leap away from finally getting rid of Rx servers, Wes, because this week, NVIDIA proposed Mesa patches to support alternative generic buffer manager backends, which I read as Wayland support is nigh. Boy, oh boy. Yeah, it looks like NVIDIA is
1: finally taking the GBM route for supporting Wayland compositors with their proprietary driver. For years, NVIDIA resisting using gbm and instead proposed using an alternative called egl streams now some compositor like gnome's mutter did implement egl streams but it's been kind of only a mild success really hit and miss and a lot of wayland compositors were not exactly keen to implement an nvidia specific solution
0: yeah they were it was like this package deal that people didn't like because they were pushing this new unix device memory allocator interface to try to address some shortcomings of GBM. And they thought, well, maybe we could learn a few things from what we liked about EGL and bring it forward. But there really hasn't been much to report on that front. It doesn't seem like they got much traction. And without much changing now, NVIDIA, with the version 470 of their driver series, has Wayland improvements that are expected and will introduce DMA buffer passing support, which is the clearest sign yet that they are actually going the GBM route, which is... Exciting because that's where most of the community momentum is for this solution.
1: We got an update when NVIDIA's James Jones, longtime contributor to Linux drivers and Wayland related efforts on their side, sent out a work in progress merge request that would allow Mesa to discover and load alternative GBM backends. And it seems like the only reason NVIDIA would be working on this GBM backend discovery and loading code was if they were planning to perhaps already done internally, implement GBM support for their proprietary Linux driver.
0: Yeah. Hey, this doesn't take away the need for the proprietary driver. So it's still not as simple a solution as an Intel Linux box or an AMD Radeon-style system where you just boot up the system and it just works out of the box. You still have to load the NVIDIA proprietary driver here. But NVIDIA being willing to make this compromise actually truly, for real realsies, opens the door to use Wayland on the proprietary NVIDIA driver, which means by summer, end of summer-ish, the classic age-old problem that prevented Wayland adoption amongst a ginormous swath of the Linux population could be resolved. And it could be a problem of the past that just is no longer a problem. With this contribution
1: and that recent uh, GPU pass-through contribution, does this mean we have to hate
0: NVIDIA less? Linux.ting.com. New year, new plans, same incredible service. And, you know, a good family plan is hard to find, but not at Ting. Ting's newest Flex plan addresses this particular pain point in a very customer-friendly kind of way. Add as many lines on your account as you need. It's just $10 per line. Every line has unlimited texting calls. Every line shares the same pool of LTE or 5G, and you just pay $5 per gigabyte as you need. But if you need 2 gigs or 20 gigs, there's a perfect Ting plan for you. And every plan gets access to Ting's award winning customer service with nationwide LTE and 5G coverage. Plus, the thing I love the most the freedom of no contracts ever. And now Ting has three great networks to choose from. It's simple to switch to Ting. I've been on the Verizon network, and it was easy to go to linux.ting.com, check my current phone. I created an account, got the plan dialed in, and then Ting sent me a SIM card that I just popped into my phone, and it was active in minutes. You can do it all through their beautiful website, but if you ever need support, they're right there to help you. Cutting your phone bill in half has never been easier with Ting's mobile plans. Check out the Flex Plan and much more. It's the next generation of Ting Mobile. It's here. So go see how much you could save and get $25 off at linux.ting.com. Thanks to Ting for supporting Linux Action News, and thanks to everyone who supports this show by going to linux.ting.com. Good news
1: in GTK Town. There's a new library in the works that should be a boon to anyone looking to create a modern GNOME application. But to understand why, we need a little bit of context. For the past 20 years, GNOME has had Human Interface Guidelines, or HIG for short, but implementing them has been a lot of manual work for application developers.
0: And it's tricky because developers have been told, yeah, just go create a GTK application. Well, how do you create a quote-unquote GNOME-looking GTK application? Elementary OS has Granite, and there are some things out there that GTK developers can use, like LibHandy and a few others that have cropped up over the years, like LibDazzle. But it's not really a clear signal on this is how you go create a GNOME-looking and GNOME-guideline-following application. It just really hasn't existed Developers have clearly needed some kind of blessed library that implements the HIG and what a standard GNOME application should look like. This
1: new libadwaita library intends to be that missing code. It's going to be implemented as a direct GTK4 continuation and replacement of libhandy, and it's going to be developed by those same current developers.
0: Replacement of LibHandy is a big deal, and I don't think when LibHandy first came along, they thought it would be this way to create standard-looking applications, but it clearly has been something that the GTK ecosystem developers have needed. Now, the library, not quite ready to be used yet. There's still some fixes and remaining issues that have to be worked out. They're going to write up a migration guide, and then they'll start releasing an alpha that people can target. But what's key here is that This libiduidia library is going to follow revisions of the GNOME shell human interface guideline, and it will have a release schedule that tracks with GNOME's release schedule, and each version of the library will target a specific version of GNOME, and the first stable version being released alongside GNOME 41. Dang it, Chris. Just when you started learning Flutter. Somehow I'm going to make do, West because a well-known GNOME developer has been chipping away at making OBS Studio work completely under Wayland. That includes things like capturing monitor and windows, even on a Wayland composited desktop. It's here. It's awesome. It's a release candidate. It's a major milestone for the Linux Wayland desktop. Yeah, I
1: think this is one of those checkboxes. There's just a number of Linux users out there and they need to have before they're actually ready for Wayland. And it's nice to see all the hard work that's had to go in, both to the OBS project itself, but also all the plumbing underneath, things like pipe wire and portals that are required to make this not only work, but eventually be better and more secure than it could have ever been on X11.
0: Well, they weren't April fooling around. Arch actually has an installer now. And you know us, we had to give it a go. Yeah, you know we did. We had to try it. You download the standard Arch ISO image and then just run Arch install and get kind of like a guided, basic installation. It's not going to do much fancy for you.
1: No, it's a Python application. You can also install it with PIP or all the other ways to get Python apps if you like, but I like they've included it by default, huh? And no, there's not a lot of extensibility right now, at least not in the built-in. But because it's Python, they've got some documentation for scripting it yourself if you want to totally customize it. That has some interesting potential.
0: Yeah, because when you're kind of done answering all of its questions, it essentially just generates a big JSON output of what's going to happen to your machine. So I would think you could take that and pipe that back to the arch installer on another machine and just kind of replicate your setup
1: yeah and you can use it as a library directly if you want to go fully custom say
0: for your fleet of arch servers you're building of course obviously who wouldn't be and um, i'll say this it's not like going to blow you away but by the time you're done you'll have a fully booting graphical arch linux desktop pretty minimal but there and it takes about 15 minutes there is one gotcha we ran into though We were testing
1: things out in a virtual machine, I'll admit. Haven't tried it on bare metal yet. It only seems to support EFI, so watch out, you BIOS booters out there. It's legacy, but of course, that's what we got by default in the virtual machine. Tells you things are done and ready to reboot. Oh no, my friend, you don't come back from that.
0: Who would have thought it? Arch with its own official installer. And it's really, you know what? It's not bad. We'll have a link to the project repository too. There's always a lot going on though. So go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes.
1: And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to keep in touch.
0: Now don't miss Linux Unplugged 400 this week. Wes and I have been brewing up something special.
1: We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week.